0: After the Virus, Episode 21. Brought to you by After the Virus, a Survivalist Journal. Available as an ebook or paperback at Amazon.com. And locally in Chico, California at The Bookstore. While Will and Hope were in Ishii Country, they mostly sheltered in caves like the Yahi Band of the Yana tribe did. Now that they're in the Sacramento Valley, they're dwelling in a roundhouse. The large, partially underground structure modeled after a community meeting place that had been used by the Maidu people, whose homeland included both mountain and valley areas. As episode 20 concluded, we saw a different side of hope.
1: I was assigned to help Ethan check animal snares and booby traps. Not at all unpleasant, as Ethan is smart, confident, skilled, and handsome. Each morning, we follow a different, established trapline loop. Four in all, we've done three, each taking about half of the day to complete. We change out the bait and move traps that have not caught anything. We set traps that have been tripped, but not caught anything, and remove the game from traps that have been successful. Our most common catch has been black-tailed jackrabbits, followed by cottontail rabbits and grey squirrels, all used for food and fur. We have also caught a couple of grey foxes, which are not consumed, but the fur is processed for winter clothing. I take my bow and Ethan his blowgun, in case we see any prey along our route. The blowgun is incredible, and Ethan is amazing at it. I watched him shoot a fat-collared dove from nearly ten yards away, and he says that he has taken deer with it. He's teaching me how to use it. According to Ethan, there are two keys to the blowgun's effectiveness. The first is good dart placement. A shot to the head can kill instantly. The second is poison darts. Ethan soaks his darts in a combination of rattlesnake venom, black widow venom, and amanita mushroom sauce. He catches the snakes and black widows, and painstakingly milks them for their venom. And the mushrooms, he grounds into a slurry. It was this combination, plus great shot placement, that dropped the dogs that were pursuing us the other day. The entire group are accomplished blowgunners. I caught myself staring at Ethan as he explained the process. I hope he didn't notice. In addition to the animal traps, we check the numerous trip wires and hair traps for evidence of humans. The hair traps are simple and ingenious, often nothing more than a nail poking out of a long, well-worn trail, or recycled barbed wire wrapped around a tree along a forest path about four feet above the ground to catch the fiber of a person's clothing. So far, all we've found has been deer and bear hair, so that's reassuring. Aside from that, Everyone's focus is on the upcoming trip. We are anxious, but nervous. February 20th. Today Ethan showed me one of the biggest secrets of the camp. War pigeons. Just as homing pigeons were used to relay critical information in wartime, the network of survivalists use messenger pigeons to provide daily updates to each other on movements of the paramilitary and other developments in the post-virus world. Apparently, it is so low-tech that the PM has not figured it out yet. We don't know how many resistance camps there are. There may be many independent groups, just surviving, hiding until something breaks. But soon after the attacks on us BNC started, an archipelago of camps was set up and began to communicate with one another. Our pigeon loft is about a five-minute walk from the roundhouse, and like everything else here, is well camouflaged in the middle of a stand of a rondo, the invasive bamboo-like clusters that are everywhere along the river. There are about a dozen pigeons, which are rotated daily. These pigeons live here, but were trained to be fed at camps near Calusa, Redding, and beyond, so they carry the messages from our camp to those camps, are fed, and then fitted with a reply message. When they are again released, they fly back to our camp to roost, The messages are on small computer chips that slip easily into a tiny pack that fits on the pigeon's back. The chips can hold a tremendous amount of information. So we not only get info from the nearest camps, but we get updates on camps all up and down the state, who, likewise, send these pigeons back and forth to the next camps in line in both directions. I am told these messages are encrypted for security in case they are intercepted. Kimberly, a slender, silver-haired woman, is in charge of the pigeon loft. We watch as she prepared a big male pigeon named Kong for a flight, attaching his personalized backpack. It actually has Kong embroidered on it. Inserted the chip into the pocket, kissed him on the head, and tossed him into the air. Without hesitation, he pumped his wings southward and was gone in a flash. Next, she repeated the process with a similar pigeon, named Cody. Who is bound for Reading, Named for Buffalo Bill Cody, the most famous Pony Express rider. After the pigeon lesson, Kimberly walked back to the roundhouse, while Ethan and I stayed at the loft and watched the pigeons for an hour, talking about the upcoming trip and what we might do if the world ever got back to normal. February 21st. The relative peace of our existence here was shaken by a series of explosions today. According to our hosts, bombing runs were a common experience last summer and fall, but had subsided in recent months. The campground in RV Park a couple of miles away had been the nearest target to the roundhouse, and that was many months ago. Today's bombings were south of us, in an area of farms and ranchettes north of Chico. No one can guess what their target must have been, as they know of no refugee camps nearby. The proximity of blasts is alarming though. The PM is likely increasing their patrols since the loss of their men and helicopter last week. Our weapons cache here is impressive. Every time the family has taken out an adversary, they have harvested all of the weapons and ammo, including M2A1 50 caliber machine guns, an MK19 grenade machine gun, and an M3 84 mm bazooka. In addition to these big guns, there are numerous handguns, tasers, stun guns, knives, bows, blowguns, pepper spray, brass knuckles, and throwing knives. Obviously, we aren't able to practice with the guns. Those will be transported by the larger men, who have now used them numerous times against the enemy. But Ethan and I have been practicing daily with the throwing knives and blowguns. I've gotten quite good with both. Yesterday I made my first kill with a blowgun, a fat porcupine. Not only was the porcupine meat delicious, like pork, but the quills are useful for sewing, knitting, and many other things. Tonight we are having a meeting, where the plan for the trek to Oakland will be unveiled and discussed. February 22nd. I am reluctant to write in too much detail about the plans that were laid out for our trip in case the camp is raided and this journal is found. I'll just say that it relies on assistance from the other camps along our route. The hardest part is transporting the weapons. The big machine guns weigh 75 pounds. The river plays a major role in our plan. After our morning trapline route, Ethan and I spend the afternoon breaking down the game, to be made into meals by others. We gut and skin the animals. The intestines are stretched, dried, and twisted for string twine, and cordage. Hearts and livers are kept fresh for immediate consumption. Remaining organs are used for bait, for traps, and for fishing bait. The meat is boned out. Some cuts turned into steaks, chops, roasts, and stew meat, with the remainder cut into thin strips for jerky. We are currently converting most of the meat to jerky, so we have a lasting supply for our journey. Pelts are fleshed, foxes and coyote pelts are processed into furs for collars, others are tanned into leather for garments. If we have time in the late afternoon, we walk the half mile to the river and fish from shore. There are no salmon this time of year, but we catch a variety of edible species, bass, suckers, and squawfish. These as well, as much of the game meat, is often turned into stew, as this is the easiest way to cook for and feed the group. February 23rd Today we began dismantling our trap lines, as we get closer to our departure date. Apparently we had built up a store of enough jerked meat that we can take down the traps and snares. We'll take down one a day for the next few days, and haul all of the rigging back with whatever game we have harvested. In addition to all the processed meat, we have many pounds of walnut and almond meat, collected from all of the abandoned orchards surrounding us. We will have plenty of protein to last us a while. In the afternoon, Travis called everyone together to walk us through some of the preparations. Chris demonstrated the packs we will be wearing when traveling, including all of the weaponry we'll carry, and how they will be attached for quick access. Then, we were led down a trail I'd not been on before, to an area on the river I had not visited. Here, under a massive downed valley oak tree, Covered with wild grape vines and camouflage netting, are stored a variety of boats fishing boats, a few duck hunting boats, a couple of canoes, and a bunch of kayaks. All have been heavily camouflaged with vines and straw, added for additional concealment. They were collected from nearby farms and shops, abandoned as their owners died or were murdered. We will use these boats to travel at night, at least as far as Night's Landing or as far as we can. One of the boats already has a large machine gun mounted in it. If we get to the point where we have to use it, I think we'll be in big trouble. Ethan and I were last in line on the walk back to Roundhouse. About halfway back, my stomach jumped into my throat as he reached for my hand, and I gripped his fingers. Although I know I ate dinner, I don't remember what we had or how it tasted. February 24th, our decision on when to leave is based on the moon phase. We'll be leaving when the moon reaches first quarter, which will give us enough light to see the obstacles in the river at night. It should give us about 16 nights of moonlight, for at least part of each night. The moon is waxing right now, which means we will depart in about five days. Ethan and I took down another trap line today. Halfway through, I turned around and he was right behind me. So I reached up and kissed him. OMG. For the rest of the route, every time we stopped to remove a trap, we would kiss. Now we are back, processing our catch and storing equipment, and I can't stop thinking about it. I hope we get to travel in the same boat together. February 25th. I have been so preoccupied with my own thoughts and feelings that I completely lost track of Will and Laurel. They always eat together, and tonight I notice their bunks are now pushed together. I'm pretty sure they are now a couple. I am so happy for them. They both needed someone, and it looks like they found each other. Chris has fabricated a prosthetic hand for Will. Nothing fancy, it looks like the jaw of a pair of pliers. They are controlled by a cable, and Will can make them open and close by extending his arm in a certain way. I owe Will my life and he is once again seeming like the strong, confident man I met before he lost his hand. He has taught me so much. February 26th. Last night, there was a bombing raid very near to us. An old barn about a mile away was targeted. It's assumed that they were trying to bomb us and thought that we were using the barn. This morning, Kong flew in from Calusa with a message that the next camp south in a place called Fremont Weir had been raided, and only a few refugees survived. The timing of these two attacks suggested that the militia has received some intelligence about our network. Travis called us together this morning to let us know that we may have to move out quickly, as the PM is getting close to finding us. We spent the day doubling our efforts to prepare for leaving. February 27th. In the middle of the night, A helicopter could be heard searching back and forth to the south of us. The entire camp except for me and Aiden, who I was charged with watching, shouldered a variety of weapons and headed out. At one point, the helicopter came close. I could see its giant floodlights scanning the woods about 200 yards away. Then suddenly, it rushed away to the east, in the direction of the bombed barn. I tried to keep Aiden calm, as bursts of machine-gun fire erupted. The burst continued for a couple of minutes, and then there was an explosion and I could see a fireball as the chopper went down. Then, nothing. I waited, and waited, for the group to return. It was mid-morning before they stumbled into camp. Will was first in line, followed by Chris, then Laurel, Heather and Amy. The looks on their faces as they got closer suggested sadness. Where are the others? I called. All I could think about was Ethan.
0: Thanks again for the pleasure of your company, and don't forget to order the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com or locally in Chico at The Bookstore.